Welcome to The Lumber Word, where industry veterans Matt Beamer, Greg Riley, and Ashley Buckle dissect the world of commodity lumber each week. We bring you up-to-date insights on supply, demand, and market trends, sharing our trading expertise to benefit everyone in the supply chain. Join us for informative and entertaining discussions that guarantee to make you wiser about all things lumber. Everybody, welcome to The Lumber Word, Episode 9. Uh, Matt Beamer, Hampton Lumber Sales, Greg Riley, Sick of USA, Ashley Buck with the Lumber Channel. Uh, we've got a guest today also I'll introduce in a few minutes, Greg Kuda from Westline Capital Strategies, where we'll talk about the lumber futures world and everything exciting about the new contract. So I want to do the disclaimer, Greg, Matt and I are seasoned veterans who have made some really big mistakes and also had some great ideas in our life. So anything that we recommend or talk about in here are simply our ideas and consume them at whatever risk that you want to. So a little shout out to Fox Gell, who listens, one of our new listeners. Greg, I was talking to our friend Mike today, and he was out to dinner last week with somebody. And they said, hey, have you heard the new podcast, The Lumber Word, that I've been listening to? And Mike goes, yes, I'm very familiar with the guys. So I thought that was cool. I think we've got a lot of listeners from all over. Uh, last week, we talked a little bit about coming back from the shows and what what we saw. But I, what I want to do is get to Greg pretty quick here. I want to recap a little bit about the cash from last week. I mean, I know Greg and I were sitting around in the office, Matt, last Saturday, and then every day this week so far. And look at if you have wood on the ground, you're still moving some inventory. But let's roll through a couple of the different regions in North America and production regions talk about what we're seeing. So, Matt, what about the Pacific Northwest lumber and the Canadian Western spruce? What's the breakdown on that from uh, from last time we did this? You, you know, it's just the prices dropped on Green Duck Fur so much that it's now become a bit of a speculation play. And and, uh, and there's been a, a bit of a volume rally here on Green Duck Fur. The dry duck fur and the dry hem fur business is just steady. And then I think uh, the, the narrow lumber is easier to sell than the, the wide lumber. So 2 by 8 and 2 by 10 and 2 by 12 are really cheap, honestly. But, you know, having said that, we're getting orders and we have maintained our order files and, and extended them. And studs are okay. You know, we're, we're selling enough volume each day to keep the order file going, but we're having, we're having to trade some price also. There's competition for stud orders right now, so... I don't know. All in all, I think we're pleasantly surprised with the state of the market and the cash side in the West here as we finish September. So, so Matt, what? Uh, just always curious that since you live in both those green and dry dug fur worlds, what is that spread now between green and dry? Is it is it getting wider? Yeah, mills are starting to switch over to dry. You know, so I was talking to a guy that produces green dug fur here, I don't know, half an hour ago, and he's you know they're they're moving their two before and two to six over to dry. I mean. Two six green got down in the low to mid three hundreds mill, and dries like in the you know four hundreds. There's a big enough spread to justify drying it. Two before dry has been trading in the. If you're not dumping C plus tallies out of Canada, you know if you're selling actually the kind of tallies that people want to buy, you can get lots of low to mid five hundred dollar FOB mill orders on dry two before. And green has, you know, standard better green got down into the, 
the low to mid 300s. So you're talking like $200. Just so everybody knows what Matt's talking about here, if you're not familiar with green and dry. Green product usually stays in markets closer, Matt, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, closer to the coast, places with higher humidity levels, so to speak. It's basically the West Coast plus a couple other markets like Oklahoma, Texas. Um, Northeast has Missouri. a couple of spots. Yeah, still. the Northeast has a few places, but 90% of what's produced in Oregon and Washington either stays in Oregon, Washington, or California. Sometimes Arizona. Generally, what is it? Fifty dollars to dry as a rule, or what do you? I use? think it's more like eighty, but okay. I don't know exactly. Okay. But I think it's more than you think it is. You know, it's um, it, it, it certainly could be now. But the Matt's point is, when it gets to be so the the spread gets so wide, it doesn't make any sense to not try it if you're getting orders there, right? right? And some mills don't have dryers, though, right? And some some of the smaller mills. Yeah, I mean, there's there are mills that just refuse to ever dry lumber. They're they're in the green duck for a business. That's what they're going to make, and it doesn't matter what the spread is. But there's plenty of mills that can go back and forth. You know, most of the modern mills can. So so there we are. Would right now the month we're going months we're going into would Texas be buyers of green since it's getting a little cooler there at these discounted levels? Not usually they have other options they have yellow pine and they have spruce and that's a good point and there are there are some jobs down there that require doug fir some of the apartment jobs need a doug fir or yellow pine strength rating yellow pine's going to win all those arguments right now hmm. the only thing really that goes into texas green is long lengths and that's probably won't change anytime soon i mean people like that wood and it yards well down there so that's also the same in oklahoma and missouri and and some of the other markets, they like green dug fur. It takes a nail. The only drawback with green dug fur is just the weight of it. You know, it's just heavy. Yeah. Let's go over to the BC side where you also trade. And what uh, what's going on with the British Columbia 2x4 and products out of there? Well, you know, we're not moving a lot of 2x4 because we have a fairly significant order file on 2x4. And we're just not producing a lot of 2x4. So what we've been selling and what we've been focused on is 2x6, heavy 18s and 20s, which is a bit of a niche because not a lot of other mills are pumping out very many 18s and 20s. So it gives us a chance to leverage those tallies with higher prices. And, you know, that's working. But yeah, two before hasn't really been our, our issue at all. And then when we do come up with some two before, it's usually, again, heavy 18s and 20s, which makes it worth more than just a can random H16. Uh, Greg, uh, could you jump on the Eastern Spruce side and tell me what, what you're seeing out there? It's been the same for a while now where there's good liquidity, the wood is moving, and prices are grinding lower. And there's a few products that are relatively weaker, and then there's a few products that have some relative strength. We've been talking about it on the show for a number of weeks. Two by six, nines and tens uh, have been under a lot of pressure. Two by four, sixteens have, have, been in good, have been in good demand. And that hasn't changed. Greg, did you see any uh, action on Eastern 8s, 9s, and 16s today? Uh, uh, I had heard at the end of day that they got uh, some action on some short covering with studs out east. I did not see enough that you know changed the dynamic at all. I mean, like I've been saying, we've been grinding down. We've been buyers in the market every day for the last several weeks. And it's like every day or two, you know, you're trading 5 or $10 lower than you were. Not enough to change any dynamic just yet, Greg. Yeah. 
And how about Euro Spruce, Greg? Most of the, a bunch of boats have hit in the last few weeks. It seems to be they're cleaning up pretty quickly. What, uh, any dynamics there that any traders I think, should know about? I think Euro would. We're at, we're at a run rate that's, you know, 40, 40% of what it had been in the, you know, late last year, or the first part of this year. Yeah, for the most part, that volume is moving pretty smoothly through the ports. I mean, if you're competitive on the, at, at the market price, you're going to keep moving it. If you if you want to get if you want to hold for a higher price, that's not that's not going to get any orders at the time being. Yeah, great. One one of the things that we rarely talk about, we were chatting about it the panel I was on in uh, Indianapolis, OSB. So when I saw print come out yesterday, down fifteen to twenty dollars. One of the conversations I had out in Indianapolis was with all the consolidation, when, when OSB does slow, you get like a huge air pocket. So if it's trading off and random right now, I can only imagine. And again, this is only my opinion, what is trading off in the real, in the spot market right now. So that must be a little bit weak. And uh, in Southern Pine, Matt, you had a good conversation on that one. I think Southern Pine is still one of the least expensive species in most in most widths, so to speak. And is especially six inch. Yeah, I don't know as much about four inch, but it still doesn't have any real solid footing. It's trading. But four inch pine had a great. I mean, it had a good run. It had about a seventy, eighty dollar run over the last three weeks. It did, and I think that's kind of run its run, run its course at this point. But I mean, it had a good run. Yeah, yeah, good point, Greg. It did have a good a good run on that six inch. Didn't really come along with it though, did it? Greg, do you attribute that to traders just stepping in to cover? On four inch pine, um, I, I look at more the the, the four inch is more for multifamily guys and trust guys, right? I mean, MSR and it's MS, a lot cheaper than spruce. Yeah, MSR spruce is after having the rally earlier this summer has held up. I mean, yellow pine was just selling at such a huge discount. So this is a perfect time, Greg. I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce you here, Greg Kuda from Westline Capital. I've known Greg for quite a long time, and Greg, maybe you you can update and give us movement through the industry and how you got there. But Greg is an expert on futures and uh, and has I would say some most contacts on the futures side, especially related to the spot market. He and Alex Mead uh, from StoneX worked together. I saw them both put on a great presentation in Indianapolis. Greg Riley, Greg was like, hey, get Greg on the phone so we can talk about, or get him on the line here so we can talk yeah, about some Yeah, and I just want, you know, for our listeners out there, you're hearing the name Greg a lot today. Um, <laughs> I just want to let you know that we've got, we got, we got, we got, we got, we got 2G and 3G today. So we've got a 5G broadcast live and in technicolor. <laughs> I'm looking at our names, oh, and I'm like, no yeah, one, you're no right. Wonder you're why, right. No wonder them. why we're, we're, gl- we're glowing right now. <laughs> so I'm just going to refer to you as uh, 2G, so, okay? I'm sorry. I, I like that. That's okay. That's okay. So, so Greg, look at it. I've referred to you as a lot kind of, worse, so don't, don't worry. <laughs> uh, I'll set the table here. I watched your presentation. It was great. And I kind of look around the room, and I read faces, and it, it seems to be, you know, you were speaking to a tough, tough crowd there. A lot of people that just deal in the cash market, not the physical market, the the futures market as much. But I know Greg with two G's, Matt and I spend a lot of our day looking at futures because it is a major part of our toolbox that we use. Absolutely. So what are you seeing in futures? Give us a little bit of conversation about what you see going forward with the new contract and, and whatever else you want to talk about a little bit here, and then we'll pepper you with some questions. Yeah, no, first of all, thanks uh, to everybody, uh, uh, Ashley, especially for having me on the show. I truly appreciate it. And you're 
previous form, we had done this show for a while. But long story short, for people that don't know me, I've been trading lumber futures exclusively since 1998. I went off on my own in 2009. I have my own company, Westline Capital Strategies. You referenced Alex Mean at StoneX. StoneX is an FCM that clears futures transactions. So they're like Charles Schwab or a JP Morgan or a Goldman Sachs. With equities, they, they serve the same purpose with commodities and derivatives. Again, I've been doing this since 98, heavily concentrated in the industry, the entire vertical food chain of sawmills, so Eastern and Western SPF, Dugfer, Hempfer, Domestic, you get into Euro now, Southern Yellow Pine, uh, Eastern SPF from Boston, Great Lakes. If we can correlate it to futures and that there's a statistical, a significantly statistical correlation, then there's a relationship between cash and futures. And that's kind of what I specialize in. And, and so kind of what I'm seeing from a future standpoint, take one more step back. There's a new truck-based contract that's not so new anymore. Truck-based futures replace the legacy contract, the old legacy contract was exclusively a Western SPF FOB Prince George. It was pretty much 100% SPF. COVID happened. It exposed a lot of flaws in all commodities, not just lumber, but lumber was the poster child of what could go wrong when you have extreme volatility. So long story short, the CFTC mandated to the CME, you either create a new contract or you eliminate the existing contract. So I know that there was some struggle with acceptance of the truck-based contract, but it was either no futures or truck, that that was the alternative. And so the CME a year ago, starting August 8th of 2022, started and rolled out the truck-based contract. Um, Some of the big differences with the truck-based contract is it's a quarter of the size. So four trucks equal that 110,000 board foot car. The other big difference is that it's delivered FOB to Chicago. So there's about a $108 adder. When you look at futures relative to the old legacy contract, you need to add $108 a thousand. And so then the other, I guess the third big thing is that it's no longer just a Western SPF contract. Uh, as long as it's got a number two stamp on it and it's not Southern Yellow Pine, you can deliver that wood into the new contract. So Eastern SPF, Western SPF, domestic Canadian fur, hemp fur, uh, those are all deliverable species now into the new contract. And, you know, I know we all, you know, the other thing I'll say is that we all get hung up on the delivery mechanism of futures. It's a deliverable contract. 97% of the people that will ever trade lumber futures will only use this as a financial stopgap in trading. They will never go through making or taking delivery. So the other 3% are going to use it as an EFP tool in exchange for physical, where they would exchange their futures contract for physical cash. So less than 1%.0001 would ever go through the delivery CME delivery process. Since the new contract, has, has anything gone through CME delivery process? Has any contracts? No. No. In, so in a, a well functioning no. contract, there should be zero. There is absolutely no reason why anybody ever makes or takes delivery through the CME mechanism. So, so the last time we went through delivery was March of 2022, and and then ended up being a giant 
it was it never should have gotten to that point. It went through that point. Um, and the CME, uh, uh, at the end of the day, if it's a deliverable contract, you have to have the mechanisms in place to go through that delivery process. They have to think of every single angle possibly if this were, were to be delivered. But the reality is the only time somebody should ever go through the delivery process, whether you take delivery or make delivery, is if it's advantageous to you. Is there a freight advantage? Is there some kind of significant advantage? I'm not talking two, three dollars a thousand. I'm talking where it has to be so obvious that you would go through the delivery process in doing this for a long, long time, pretty much since 2004 to 2007, there's no reason, no rationale to go through delivery. I can't look back at any of the deliveries I've done through the exchange and said, this was the greatest idea in the world. It usually ends up being, why do we do this? I heard an interesting story when one person did it a couple of years ago, just because they were new in the wholesale industry and wanted to take delivery so they could open up an account with a mill and it actually worked. Yeah, no. And, and again, so you, you have to understand not necessarily taking delivery. Um, I won't name names, but 90% of the sell side of deliveries are two entities, Western SPF sawmills. And for a lot of people, you know, think of wholesale brokerage. They don't get to see those lists on a daily basis because they won't be sold to. So this is your opportunity. If you want to deal with select mills, you can actually touch their wood mill direct. You actually get to look at their tallies and buy that wood direct. So from an EFP standpoint, which is an exchange for physical, 99.9% when we think of delivered is actually EFP'd. And that's off exchange. That's not through the CME. You can EFP any species, any item that you want. Um, you can do Southern Yellow Pine. We've done Southern Yellow Pine EFPs. We've done Euro EFPs. We've done Hemfer, Dugfer, Eastern SPF. We've done Eastern Boston. We've done Studs, MSR. You can EFP anything that you can creatively think of if both sides, if both counterparties understand what they're doing and want to do it. Delivery, once you get through that delivery mechanism, then it's the contract specifications, what's written into the contract. So Greg, I think, I think it's important to know for people listening here, one, it's good to learn about futures, even if you're not going to trade them currently for a couple of reasons. One, most negotiations that you do farther out than spot, that counterparty is looking at futures. So if you don't know what they're looking at, and Matt and I talked about this yesterday, and Greg, I really don't want a lot of people to learn about it. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, right? Yeah. From a selfish standpoint, right? But let's talk about where people get lost is when they try to make that segue from the futures market to the cash market. You were talking about EFPs. We've EFP'd uh, Euro in the last few months, right? Which is awesome. We, we were the sellers, right? So I think there's a misnomer out there that people are like, well, only mills can sell or EFP. That's not yeah. true. Anybody can sell or EFP. Anybody can buy or EFP. So the question is, why aren't more mills doing it? And I had a good conversation with somebody at one of the events. They have to get their board of directors, all their management, everybody else on the trading floor, all in lockstep with agreeing on something. It's hard enough to get a few people to do it. And I think there's a lot of people out there that don't want to say they don't know they don't know. 
Are we have we worn that one out yet, Greg? The don't know you don't know. Uh, no, I don't think you ever. Yeah, I don't think you ever wear that out. But I mean, I think that at its most basic, the my, my, I've always been interested in the fact that this so, the the number of people that look at futures, which is a price determining mechanism, which is a risk management tool, and they use what it may or may not be doing on any given day as a decision point for a cash transaction today. I can't tell you how many times people go, oh, uh, uh, why were futures up $13 today? And I, <laughs> I, I have that question today. I have the exact same answer all the time. There were more buyers yeah. than sellers today. <laughs> yeah, no, no, and, and I will say, uh, uh, Greg, I think that's a great point. And then we did this when we spoke at the Montreal Wood Convention in the spring. We did this at the BCMC show last week in Indy. Um, you know, you've got a decent sized audience, and, and everybody's excited to hear you speak. And Alex will ask, how many people here look at futures on a daily or weekly basis? 90% of the room raises their hand. Okay, keep your hands up if you actually trade them. 90% of those numbers put their hands down. And the whole point is you look at something, it has a psychological impact, whether it's up or down, whether you're going to buy or sell, how you're going to buy or sell that day. You're going to use it as a negotiation or attempt to use it as a negotiation leverage tool, but you don't actually trade it but it influences your decision-making on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. And at the end of the day, futures is not meant to replace what you do in the traditional cash market. It's an adjunct. It's a tool in the toolbox. It's meant to complement what you do day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month in physical cash. At the end of the day, futures should help grow your market share and this is the critical part, without increasing your spo- exposure. If it's increasing your exposure, you're not using it properly or you're speculating and there's nothing wrong with speculation, but it's critical. Am I using this as a risk management tool or a speculation tool? And I think a lot of people have a difficult time understanding one is in one silo, the other's in the other silo. Don't combine the but silos. what if I want to be a hedgelator? What if I want to be a hedgelator? We could speculate, speculator. Yeah, that's uh, what Alex Mead calls him. Uh, but you, no, but your point, Greg, is is good. Everybody needs to decide. Okay, am I speculating or am I managing risk? And if I'm speculating, recognize that. Okay, this is something where I'm taking at risk money and I'm I'm making a decision. If you're risk managing, the first thing you have to do is what risk are you managing? And you have to make that decision, say, this is the risk that I'm managing, and then how you, you need to deal with the accounting side of it, whatever, within your organization, so that it can be properly uh, accounted for. No, Greg, and uh, let me say one thing, and that's the perfect, you guys talked about people leaning out inventories, and there's a bevy of reasons. It's the wrong time of the year, the industry lows. Uh, seasonal lows are still ahead of us. Um, there's actual cost of cash. You know, cash is no longer free. So the finance side of the equation is pulling their hair out when, what do you mean you want to build inventory when, for spring when I can get 
risk-free 5% sitting in the bank. You're not doing that. Lean out, gut the inventory, lean out the inventory until you see the business staring you in the face. Why are we going to build out inventory? Let the mills carry the risk. Why are we going to carry that risk? The difficulty is you ask somebody, well, where's your risk? Well, the risk is if the market goes lower. Well, wait a minute. You don't own any physical cash or you're at historical lows, two-year lows, one-year lows, five-year lows on your inventory. So is the inventory... Is your risk if the market goes lower or is the risk if the market goes higher? And I think I I say this all the time. Our industry has a very poor habit of assuming somebody else's risk. They like to assume the industry's risk when it's not necessarily their own risk. Walk through your own yard, walk through your own operation, and then define where your risk is. And then more importantly, okay, is it worth doing something about and then do something about it? Here's one of the interesting things when I look at the market today, 2G, is that we've gone from a place a week, 10 days ago, where futures was at 15 to $25 discount to the cash market, where today I could make the argument it's a 10 or 15. It made $5 to print, but probably 10 or 15 to where you can actually get cash transactions done. So I, what's your, what, do you, what are your thoughts about What's happened there? I mean, I, I think that it's twofold. Um, you had September futures go off the board. I think in the last two weeks, up until probably um, the middle of last week, you had new commodity fund type selling coming in. Um, you know, rates continue to trend higher. Don't fight the funds that when the funds are going to operate. You know, you, you saw November kind of wash out to the lows. In that 47850, 479 area, the second the fund stops selling, the industry scratches its head. Oh, wait a second. Print, Frazier's 406, prints up here. Why am I going to sell November at a perceived discount to where cash is? So the industry kind of calls out the BS. And if the industry is not going to follow suit with the funds, you get these voids back to the upside or back to the downside to reset the market. And as much as I don't believe necessarily in November at 498, if the answer is I'm going to buy a sawmill today at 398 or I'm going to buy November at 498, at least I have the liquidity in November if I'm wrong. If I don't necessarily want to put that wood on the ground and I'd rather speculate until I get through October because I think the seasonal lows are against me, but I want to own something. Then that could be the that could be the case why November is getting these bids the last three days more so than just the obvious maybe the funds are lightening up the last in first out crowd is lightening up on their shorts from an industry standpoint all right I want to do something I don't want to buy cash uh, maybe I'll buy six inch but I don't like four inch then maybe I want to own something in futures and just take that risk off the table for the next month, the next two weeks to next month before I have to step in and do something. You know, for those folks out there that are looking and saying, yeah, cost of money is very high right now and the cost of the cost of, of, of storage and, and decline in, in the value of, of, of product, I actually look at January as, wow. You know, I can basically buy today's cash market for the first quarter of next year. Hmm. Yeah. You know, wow. No, and, and traditionally, and a great, uh, uh, that, that's a great point. And that when we look at futures, you're in a cost of carry market. This is your traditional 
normal slash bear market structure. There's no shortage of prompt wood. Okay, I, I can find what I need when I need it. So futures should carry a cost of carry. And when you look at the curve, when you look at cash to November, November six weeks out should carry some premium to cash. When you look at January relative to November, our rule of thumb is you add twenty dollars a thousand to each contract month. So when you look at November versus January, that spread came in today to negative eleven thirty. Yeah, January, I can pick up $10. I'd rather own as far out as I can at the cheapest possible number, especially for future Q1, Q type, Q2 type needs. You look at, you go out on the price curve of futures. And if I can buy Jan, March, and May, and I look at those cost to carry structures, it make, and if I can build that into my equation and forward pricing jobs, that's where I own my wood. You know, the other big bonus of futures relative to cash is that I'm only asked to put up eight to ten percent margining. I don't have a hundred percent cash outlay to own this right now. Matt and I were much happier last year at this time when we were getting a hundred dollars for a hundred dollars over the cash market or more for January. We want that back again. We want yeah. our we want our MTV back. <laughs> Matt, Matt, we you were know, talking honestly, about that yesterday. I just go back about a month and maybe five weeks, and I was selling the. The contract at 560 and some change. So I, I look at it a little differently than you, Greg. And I look at it more from the hedging two, perspective. Two, two, two G or three G? Well, both you guys, uh, <laughs> because I've done all the same things that you and Ashley were talking about, where I made delivery and did the EFP as the seller. You know, I've I've actually taken delivery of of alternate products through the EFP process, like two before utility and dug for studs. I mean, I've done all kinds of weird things with futures over the years, but the difference between the way I think about futures and the way I think about cash is significant. The futures market is made up of people that are financially savvy and they're looking at things like stochastics and RSI and, you know, they're looking at interest rates and cost of money and they may or may not even be in the lumber business. You know, they're pretty sharp people. And so you're going to have a different conversation. If I called up Greg Kuda and started asking him, Hey, what's stochastics and RSI right now? He knows exactly what I'm talking about. I don't have to explain it to him. There's no guesswork here. We're all, all four of us understand what I just said, right? But you know what? I had to read some books and ask some questions 25 years ago to figure out what all this stuff meant. And so it's no different. Futures is no different than cash in that it's made up of people that understand the contract and they understand what the mechanism's used for. And that's totally different than me calling lumber retailers and distributors and offering them product from my sawmills or from my inventory right? As a trader or calling up all the mills that I've bought from for the last 30 years and, and trying to, to buy things that I want to buy, right? The cash market in some ways follows the futures market. Um, not always, but in general, I would say that the futures leads cash. Uh, it, typically, if you're not a futures guy, but you are a heavy, heavy cash guy, you kind of owe it to your own career and professionalism to understand futures. So I I would highly recommend that if you don't completely understand it, if you're one of those executives that Greg was talking about, that is like, oh, I'm not quite sure, you know, I'm not, I don't really know. Well, find out, learn, read a book, talk to some people with some expertise, because at the end of the day, futures really isn't that complicated. It really isn't. For me, it's a great tool as a hedger, but at the same time, if, if futures pricing makes a mistake, then I want to take advantage of that with the idea that I will take delivery of that you know, and turn that into some inventory, right? So 
it's no different than a sawmill as far as I'm concerned. If, if the mills want to price their lumber Matt. 50 bucks higher than futures, then I want to take a look at futures and then I'll just turn that into a, a cash transaction down the road. Matt, that's spot on. Um, again, it's not meant to replace your traditional business. I, you just you just hit the nail on the head. If I'm a buyer, I'm going to buy from sawmill A, sawmill B, sawmill C. Okay, futures is sawmill D. Just look at it as the CME sawmill. If right. I'm a seller and I can sell to customer A, customer B, customer C, futures is the retail, the distributor, distributor, it's the CME distribution, it's CME retail yard. And again, if I can't get what I want with my traditional customer base, A, B, and C, then maybe I'm gonna look at futures. And if it offers me a better opportunity, whether I'm buying or selling, that's all we ask people to use it for from a risk management standpoint. Greg, you take 10, 10 CEOs from large, mid-sized, small, lumber production companies across the world, let's say, Canada, U.S., Europe, and you ask them 10 basic futures questions, how many of them would pass that quiz? Um, probably three or four. So, Greg, you, uh, you <laughs> represent uh, 2G. I know you, you represent some, uh, some mill sellers. What's their appetite for locking in the first half of next year at today's futures prices? It's look, I, I think coming out of COVID, you have unrealistic expectations and 2023 has been a humbling year for the average producer and that what was is no longer what exists today. So at $1,000, nobody wants to hedge because why would I lock in? Again, when you look at the price curve, you've got cash returns up here. You're being asked to sell futures two, three hundred, four hundred dollars underneath those returns. Look, if the market falls back to those numbers, we'll still be profitable. At three hundred to fifty, three hundred and fifty to four hundred dollar returns, every dollar matters. So believe it or not, you know, and 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 a big part of this is Ashley referenced this publicly traded companies, they needed a, a time frame to see how the new contract would develop and work. But part of that is no publicly traded company outside of BC and Alberta is going to do an EFP program and, or just, just a, a futures program and sit there in the spot month knowing they physically can't deliver the wood. So you cleared a big hurdle, especially on the eastern side with publicly traded companies. We can physically deliver into this contract. The board approves that, okay? But it's a slow moving ship to get that approval. But going back to what you were saying, Greg, at $350 to $400, you have engaged a significant amount, a whole new tranche of producers because every dollar matters now. And when you're publicly, especially if you're publicly traded, you can't keep selling the same stuff when you have two, three, four consecutive losing quarters. Hey, guess what, shareholders? We lost the least amount of money, you know, us versus our competition. You're still losing money. So, so again, at $350 to $400, you open a lot more eyes. And there are Eastern mills, Euro mills. There are other domestic, U.S. domestic mills that have, and you've at least piqued the interest now because they're bleeding. So one thing I would say, Matt had a great point here and about how he learned. And Greg, the first thing, when I went to work with Greg years ago, he had me hand chart futures awesome. with a pencil. That's and awesome. 
And and Greg, I think I did it off. And I remember when we had to tape extra extra things on there because we had a little rally in lumber. But yeah, it got that, over. It got was, went over two hundred fifty dollars. But, but there were some, <laughs> some basic things. So whether you're a retail buyer in Texas or a truss manufacturer in Columbus, here's what I suggest: one, to talk to Greg. Two G's, Cuda. They can talk but to me too. Start learning some stuff. Here's how you learn. Here's how I learned. First of all, know what that futures price means relative to you. What's your freight delivered on that contract? So you know when you're talking to somebody about spot market, what the futures price means. That's the biggest thing I saw people move their head around in the audience. They don't know how to make that move. So learn that. Look at the price every day on a chart. You can get them off of any free service on the internet, basically, if you want to look them up. I'm not going to recommend any specific ones. You can ask Greg about it. But also look at volume and open interest, which comes out the next day on the CME website, because there's a big difference if a price goes up high and the volume is high and the open interest goes down versus the open interest going up. It's a whole different reason. And then look at the commitment of traders report that shows, as Greg said, he was talking about funds. Look at who's long and who's short. Those are just some simple things you can do to start learning about the market. Like, there, like, has like a great bedtime book right reading here. for any of those people that really want to get under the, get get under the hood. This is the kind of you're gonna have to huh? read, read it. You're gonna have to read it because it's reversed, Greg. It's option volatility and and there pricing you go. strategies, Advanced right? Trading techniques for professionals. This is light reading. You know, well, you know when you get into this, I remember, then. Uh, <laughs> they'll spin your head i remember years ago i uh i read a book about futures and it wasn't just about lumber futures it was just written by a, a professor of economics who had written some 200 page book about futures so that's where i kind of learned the terminology and then after that i started i opened an account started trading futures on my own made lots of mistakes along the way thankfully none of them were like career ending i have to say that i got a lot of advice and i learned a lot from other people and that's true both in my cash trading and my futures trading, but I've aligned myself with some pretty sharp people over the last 20 plus years of futures trading. And so I credit them just as much as, as me for learning certain things about the market. I, can, I never really used to pay much attention to market makeup, that, that kind of stuff. I just, I trade mostly as a hedger. So I basically am just looking at the price going, well, is that a good price for me to hedge? Does that make sense for me to like my inventory cost this and the and the board says I can sell it for that? Really, the math is no more difficult than that for me. My biggest problem is I have to stay disciplined. If I'm hedging, I'm not hedulating, Greg. I don't I don't hedulate. I hedge when it makes sense. And then when I have achieved my goal, I get out. The biggest thing that I do is just stay disciplined, right? Stay in your lane, do what you're supposed to do. Don't change directions just on a whim because something changed. Just do your business and then and then use it. Get out. You need three things, Matt. You need a plan. You need patience. And you need discipline. Those three things, that's all you need. And you got them. I think the one thing that people don't understand is sometimes how much patience you need to have. And I'll tell you an example of this. Back in 2011, I believe it was. I put on a trade where I bought a whole bunch. I bought like 75 cars of cash, two before and two to six. And our average cost FOB mill was 122. Got a hunch, buy a bunch. That's what I, I bought. I bought all that, sprinkled it all over the country in different reloads. And then I sold the May contract and the July contract at an average of 182. So I had a $60 basis on. 
it took until May for that $60 to come in. Like it literally, it was flat, 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 flat. And all of a sudden, boom, 60 bucks shows up. You know, it could take six months sometimes for a trade to come together. Take, you know, sometimes take, we want it, it to happen a year in and a half. month, but it happens. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just the dangest thing sometimes where you scratch your head and you're like, how come this isn't going quicker? You but know, I always it look isn't. at it kind of two things, Matt, is like a really, really great trade. You don't have time to get enough of it on before it starts to move in your favor. But the ones that you can really get a lot on, those are the ones you got to worry about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where that pa- that patience and discipline. You know, comes when in, you right? can yeah. get, when you and, can just and, keep getting, when you can just keep pockets, putting it yeah, on, yeah. then you got to really yeah. worry. <laughs> I'll I'll throw I'll throw one I'll throw one more in here since we're having fun. It's the trades that I always thought were no brainers and put a bunch on and and already counted my money were the ones I've literally paid the most tuition on. Yeah, it's the ones that my whatever was as big as a decimal point when I put them on and my eyes were watering and I would lay awake thinking about them ended up sometimes being the best. Right. right. And I don't know why. And so one of the things that I always recommend to new traders and even existing traders, people that have been doing this and I still do this is I keep a little ledger. And when you initiate a trade, I'm not asking you to write a dissertation, but why did you put the trade on? It doesn't matter if it's speculation doesn't matter if it's hedging. It doesn't matter if you're trading lumber, Bitcoin, crude oil, if you're trading equities. Why did I put this on? And go back and look at why you put this on. What were the expectations? What was the risk profile? What was the profit expectation on that trade? And it keeps you very well grounded as to why you did something. So, you know, good times, bad times, it helps you not question. It helps you stay the course and keep the discipline why you did something. So uh, real quick, I wanted to talk about one more thing here. So, well, a few things and we'll jump in and we'll talk a few extra things. So Greg, you always said people always do. You can always see people gravi- gravitate toward what they're compensated to do and away from what they're not compensated to do. So Matt, Greg, Triple G, we're compensated on what we produce. If we lose money, we don't get paid. If we make money, we get paid. I probably wasn't fair to the production side of this. What my perception is sometimes why mills won't trade, they don't give the autonomy to one person at that mill to stand up and say, I'll be the person to do this. I'll be the person to take this risk. Give me the guardrails of what I can and can't do and give me what my budget is, and I'm going out, going to go out and hedge an EFP production for this mill on a regular basis when it makes sense over the next amount of years. And here's the volume I'll do. Here's what my expectations are. There's nobody at those mills that are paid a, most of them are paid a salary and not really a. They're not incentivized to do it. Yeah. They're not, yeah. they're not sent. If they make $5 million on the hedge, they're not, they, they're not getting a big bonus. It seems to me like, okay, but if you lose $5 million, they're well, like, why didn't you yeah, make it see, on both like sides? My, you know, in, in my, view, my viewpoint always is as if I'm hedging, I want to lose the most amount of money on the futures. Because whenever I hedge, I don't hedge 100%. I hedge a percentage. And I always want to lose on my futures account because that means I've done much better. If you're a mill, if you're a producer, and you sell 1% of your production, 
the more you lose, the better. Yeah, it's a good point. What do you do, say to the mills who say that uh, with our amount of production, the futures contract isn't really meaningful for us to do anything? Well, I, I think ask them if it's meaningful now when you have losses on a, a consecutive quarterly basis to your shareholders. Great point. Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, I don't think that the vast majority of, of the people that, that are producing the lumber really understand what the futures contract could do for them if they if they wanted to actually analyze it and trade it. There there's are. a few. There's a few left out there that are actively trading it and they're using it as, as a way to open up new markets that they may may or may not have access to. But mainly they're using it as a way to sell a premium in the board when it occurs and then just use that as their partial order file for the ex- expiring month or doing expits with people that they've aligned themselves with, right? So the other thing about the new contract is it opens up the delivery process to Eastern sawmills. I remember years ago, back when Tembeck was still around, I was in their headquarters in, in Timmins, Ontario, and they had a big futures board up on like a projector screen. It was like eight feet by five feet. And I asked the guy, the executive, you know, who was hosting us, I asked him, do you guys actually trade futures? He's like, oh, not really. I'm like, hmm. Well, then why do you care what futures is doing from a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute basis? Well, we just pay attention to it. This goes along with what Greg said, where people stare at futures all day long, but they, they don't really know what it means. And then they use it to influence their buying and selling decisions without actually shipping the contract or selling the contract when it goes to a premium or buying the contract when it goes to a discount. And so it's like, uh, now that the Eastern Mills can can ship it, I think that's actually good for us as buyers. And especially if you were like a Chicago distributor or even a Michigan, just somebody in the Midwest, if you want to take delivery, you, you've now got that option to take some Resolute or some of the other Eastern Mills that are that are out there these days, and they can ship it. They can ship it to you. So that's a good thing. I think hopefully that'll increase the liquidity in the contract. We had a large uh, a large buyer call us today, ask us if we could look at putting a program together, EFPing out of our own mill. It, you know, this is creating on trucks and cars. This is creating some great opportunity everybody should look at. Real quick, what I wanted to talk about, uh, let's jump into a few things that came out this week. New home sales. Greg, what are your thoughts on that? Continues the string of like softening housing data. I mean, the housing data for the year has, has continued to be favorable and surprise people, but New home sales were down 8.7% from the prior month. They are still up 5.8 from a year ago. And they're up, you know, year to date, new home sales are up 1.8. I guess my most, the, the, the thing that I'm watching is the, the, the supplies up to 7.8 months. I mean, that had been hovering below five for the last, you know, 18 to 24 months. And over the last few months now, it's really moved up 7, 8%. I mean, I'm going to eyeball that. If you all of a sudden see the supply of new homes for sale up at 10 plus months supply, that's going to impact production builders in the first half of next year and their ability to sustain the current build cycle. Now, we pointed this out in, in when we look at housing starts, we watch completions really carefully, running at a 1.4 million pace, which is on par with what starts are now. but the real number I look at is the just shy of 1.7 million houses that are under construction. So, you know, you look at that pipeline and we got to watch it, particularly with the backdrop of, of rising interest rates. I think Jamie Dimon, I think Jamie Dimon just wanted to get a reaction yesterday when he said, 
that uh, people aren't prepared for 7% Fed funds rate. Which is all it does is. Yeah. <laughs> I think all you're doing is just re reaffirming what we've been talking about really for most of the year where this market is just a production driven market. It's not a demand driven market. And we've been stuck in a hundred, hundred fifty dollar range all year long. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, I expected slower business in the fourth quarter and the first quarter next year. And these statistics that we're talking about aren't really doing anything to change my mind. But, you know, the, the real big question is at what point do Western sawmills that are selling green duck fur for mid 300s or Western BC, Alberta mills that are selling, uh, you know, two, four and two to six in the, in the mid three hundreds, at what point do they just cry that. uncle and say, Mills you know what, because they can't we're going to just take a break. And I, I don't know. I mean, typically there's a lot of production this time of year. Yeah. Well, it's getting harder to sell the residuals too. So, you know, uh, it's, it's a little messy right now in, in terms of like economy isn't very good. Two to six, number three is not something you can dump to China in large volumes anymore. That's stacking up at sawmills. You know, the pulp and paper business isn't isn't solving anybody's problems on chips. You know, there's there's more moving pieces out there than and then you realize. And then if you want to go higher and put on a second shift, well, good luck. I mean, it's, it's going to cost you a ton. And, you know, there's there's not that many people wanting to work in a sawmill. So and then your log costs have gone up and, and you know, all kinds of stuff are sort of against these producers right now. So it's a different type. Yeah, I was of talking to our friend Greg Casey today and Casey was telling me, um, the pellet industry and the industrial industry, I don't sell too many of them. It's kind of hurting a little bit right now. So maybe I see, we can see that that low grade and that whole mill cutting profile is, is taking it a little bit harder than normal because that low grade for a while, if you remember, was, wasn't a big discount to, to the tradition, just the number two market. But it sounds to me like the economy, the utilities and all that are having a hard time catching a bid on anything right now. Are you hearing any of that, Matt? Matt what's the number three market in Texas now? Is that softened at all? I mean, it has been a real, one of the stronger markets. A little bit. It's not significantly lower. You know, it's a little lower, but so is the two before two and better two to six, two and better markers. Like, so is the stud market. I mean, so is everything, but the value of two before number three compared to a year ago is about a hundred higher today than it was a year ago. And so, you know, it's been pretty stable. Mills aren't trying to make more two before number three. That's not their option. You know, the number three in economy and utility is a fall down product. So people got to remember that mills don't make that stuff because they want to they they make it because there's a defect in the, in the log, the, the knot's too big or there's too much weighing, something like that. And then um, the other thing that's changed in Canada specifically is that we had oh, a good 10 to 12 years where the pine beetle just devastated the log supply in, in BC and Alberta. And the percentage of low grade that used to come out of a dead log was like 25 to 30%. A lot of it was shake, a lot of it was split. But there was a, a massive volume of low grade coming out of that log. And now those logs are pretty much gone. And now you're back to historically that 8 to 10% of number three falling out of the log. So that means there's just not as much number three production as there used to be. And that probably won't change in my lifetime uh, unless there's another pine beetle infestation that, you know, that I'm not planning on. So the thing about economy, like right now, economy you can buy with a one. 
Okay, it starts with a one. And two by six number three you can buy starting with a one. I bought some two by six number three below two hundred recently. I'm not the only guy. I'm sure there's other people that could still do that today. So there's there's no easy answers for anything other than two before number three. Like <laughs> seriously, that's the only low grade product that's still holding its value. That's and that's point, because Matt. they well, use well, well, one other thing I had on the whiteboard here I wanted to talk about. Keep hearing buyers now saying they're running their inventory down to lower levels, right? And historically, it, these big yards, this is the time of the year, and somebody explained this to me, where they're getting their inventory low for bonuses, whatever, right? But do you see, Matt, uh, some of these big yards, especially the consolidated ones, running their inventory on a low, uh, on a leaner level right now? You know, you know, some people are and some people are not. So um, I guess it just depends on the corporate board and, and the management teams. That there's some companies that really really have a strategy to carry low inventory going into the fourth quarter and starting out the first quarter. That's just work for them. They like that strategy. They're not going to change that strategy. It, it just, it works. And then there's other companies that, that stock lots of inventory and have millions and millions of dollars invested in inventory where they just don't really care. They just are looking at margin. Like, it, are we going to make a margin on this or not? And it, does the margin justify the expense? It's sort of mixed right now, Ash. I would say that my customers, for the most part, are a little more cautious about what they're buying just because this time of year and they're 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 getting offered more lumber than they were a month and a half ago. But at the same time, I'm still doing a lot of business and and we're still as a company doing a lot of business. So it just tells me that you know there's relatively low inventories in the field, and um, you know the mills and distributors are supplying the lumber for the most part. Greg, uh, let me know that I didn't make it his idea till somebody else brought it up a week later. We are talking 90 to a hundred dollar oil. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there's people out taking orders on forward pricing for the end of this year and some in case in some first quarter, I think when do, do diesel prices, start to slowly move up and all of a sudden those 500 to a thousand dollar hauls are now 800 to fourteen hundred dollars or or more any greg you you pretty riley you have pretty good insight on that one what are you what are you thinking on that how are you positioning yourself the the trucking rates will probably hang in okay for most of the fourth quarter just because of the seasonally lower demand i think if you're going to have a situation the combination of Winter, which slows down cycle time anyhow and availability, historically starting February, March, you get a you get an increase in truck rates anyhow. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's probably it's definitely a it's definitely a first quarter right now. I I mean you know it's a challenging environment for the for the carriers because they're getting squeezed. Rates are rates are low and costs are going up. So, well, I. I- our our situation out west is a little different, Ash, because we've got the Christmas tree season starts in the northwest, and you know, all of a sudden, you got how many forty million people in California that want a Christmas tree? <laughs> Most of those Christmas trees are coming from Oregon or Washington, and so there's in about three weeks' time, like there's going to be just a giant sucking sound. Yeah, we don't want we don't make Frasers out here. We we're like uh, noble fir, Douglas fir. You can get some hemlock. I like, you know, fir. I like a balsam fir. It has a really nice <laughs> smell. You know, 
Right? I like the yeah, balsam. Yeah, smells like orange, like, like that, citrus. That's yeah. smell yeah. of Christmas. There you go. Yep. All right, let's wrap it up. <laughs> Exactly. Well, listen, Greg, Greg, how, uh, Greg Kuda, how do people get a hold of you and what's the best way for them to get a hold of you so they can, uh, they can first get educated a little bit more and then start to, uh, to set up and move forward a little bit. Uh, how do you get a hold of me? Um, you can go to my website, westlinecapital.com. You can contact Ashley. Uh, I I'm out there. It's, I'm not, I'm not hard to find. So, uh, if people have any specific questions and again, whether it's me, I'm not going to shamelessly plug my competition but competition is good you know i i will say just like you have your cash relationships how you mesh with people uh is probably just as important as always buying low or selling high so i i think first and foremost you need to have that personality you have to have that relationship mesh but above and beyond that education wins you run a business at least educate this at there are certain days where this drives your underlying business. So at the very least, educate yourself as to why something can influence your bottom line day to day or week to week or month to month. Great. Well, we appreciate you being on today, Greg, yeah, and talking about the future. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. And uh, appreciate the audience. And I want you to all uh, remember to stick around or to, to tune in next week. We're going to have a economist on that specializes in the housing industry. Uh, has over seventy thousand Twitter now X followers and has a pretty good uh, a pretty good following on LinkedIn and all the other social media. So um, I'll announce him a little bit later in the in next week. But you'll definitely want to be on to ask uh, to listen to some of the insights that he has and some of the uh, some of the the very cool charts that he comes up with that uh, that really have a lot of data in them. So Matt Beamer from uh, Hampton Lumber Sales. Triple G, thank you. Greg Kudo, thanks for uh, yeah, for this. It's been a great show. And we'll, we'll look forward to doing this All again right. next week. Nice to be on. Thank you. Guys. you.